Chapter Nine, Part Two of Annals of a Quiet Neighborhood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Annals of a Quiet Neighborhood by George MacDonald. Chapter Nine, Part Two. Miss Oldcastle left the room, and Judy turned to me. "How do you do, Mr. Walton?" she said. "'Quite well, thank you, Judy,' I answered. "'Your uncle admits you to his workshop, then?' "'Yes, indeed. He would feel rather dull sometimes without me, wouldn't you, Uncle Stoddart?' <laughs> "'Just as the horses in the field would feel dull without the gadfly, Judy,' said Mr. Stoddart, laughing. Judy, however, did not choose to receive the laugh as a scolium explanatory of the remark and was gone in a moment, leaving Mr. Stoddart and myself alone. I must say he looked a little troubled at the precipitate retreat of the damsel, but he recovered himself with a smile, and said to me, "'I wonder what speech I shall make next to drive you away, Mr. Walton.' "'I am not so easily got rid of, Mr. Stoddart,' I answered, "'and as for taking offence, I don't like it, and therefore I never take it. But tell me what you are doing now.' I have been working for some time at an attempt after a perpetual motion, but I must confess more from a metaphysical or logical point of view than a mechanical one. Here he took a drawing from a shelf, explanatory of his plan. You see, he said, here is a top made of platinum, the heaviest of metals, except iridium, which it would be impossible to procure enough of and which would be difficult to work into the proper shape. It is surrounded, you will observe, by an air-tight receiver communicating by this tube with a powerful air-pump. The plate upon which the point of the top rests and revolves is a diamond, and I ought to have mentioned that the peg of the top is a diamond likewise. This is, of course, for the sake of reducing the friction. By this apparatus communicating with the top through the receiver, I set the top in motion, after exhausting the air as far as possible. Still there is the difficulty of the friction of the diamond point upon the diamond plate, which must ultimately occasion repose. To obviate this I have constructed here underneath a small steam-engine which shall cause the diamond plate to revolve at precisely the same rate of speed as the top itself. This, of course, will prevent all friction. Not that with the unavoidable remnant of air, however, I ventured to suggest. That is just my weak point, he answered. But that will be so very small. Yes, but enough to deprive the top of perpetual motion. But suppose I could get over that difficulty. Would the contrivance have a right to the name of a perpetual motion? for you observe that the steam-engine below would not be the cause of the motion. That comes from above, here, and is withdrawn, finally withdrawn." "'I understand perfectly,' I answered. At least I think I do. But I return the question to you. Is a motion which, although not caused, is enabled by another motion worthy of the name of a perpetual motion? Seeing the perpetuity of motion has not to do merely with time but with the indwelling of self-generative power, renewing itself constantly with the process of exhaustion. 
He threw down his file on the bench. "'I fear you are right,' he said. "'But you will allow it would have made a very pretty machine.' "'Pretty I will allow,' I answered, as distinguished from beautiful, for I can never dissociate beauty from use. "'You say that, with all the poetic things you say in your sermons, for I am a sharp listener, and none the less such that you do not see me. I have a loophole for seeing you, and I flatter myself, therefore, I am the only person in the congregation on a level with you in respect of balancing advantages. I cannot contradict you, and you cannot address me. Do you mean, then, that whatever is poetical is useless? I asked. Do you assert that whatever is useful is beautiful? he retorted. A full reply to your question would need a ream of paper and a quarter of quills, I answered, but I think I may venture so far as to say that whatever subserves a noble end must in itself be beautiful. Then a gallows must be beautiful, because it subserves the noble end of ridding the world of malefactors? He returned promptly. I had to think for a moment before I could reply. I do not see anything noble in the end, I answered. If the machine got rid of malefaction, it would indeed have a noble end, but if it only compels it to move on, as a constable does, from this world into another, I do not, I say, see anything so noble in that end. The gallows cannot be beautiful. Ah! I see you don't approve of capital punishments. I do not say that. An inevitable necessity is something very different from a noble end. To cure the diseased mind is the noblest of ends. To make the sinner forsake his ways, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, the loftiest of designs. But to punish him for being wrong, however necessary it may be for others, cannot, if dissociated from the object of bringing good out of evil, be called in any sense a noble end. I think now, however, it would be but fair in you to give me some answer to my question. Do you think the poetic useless? I think it is very like my machine. It may exercise the faculties without subserving any immediate progress. It is so difficult to get out of the region of the poetic that I cannot think it other than useful. It is so widespread. The useless could hardly be so nearly universal. But I should like to ask you another question. What is the immediate effect of anything poetic upon your mind? Pleasure, he answered. And is pleasure good or bad? Sometimes the one, sometimes the other. In itself? I should say so. I should not. Are you not, then, by your very profession, more or less an enemy of pleasure? On the contrary, I believe that pleasure is good, and does good, and urges to good. Care is the evil thing. Strange doctrine for a clergyman. Now do not misunderstand me, Mr. Stoddart. That might not hurt you, but it would distress me. Pleasure, obtained by wrong, is poison and horror. But it is not the pleasure that hurts, it is the wrong that is in it that hurts. The pleasure hurts only as it leads to more wrong. I almost think myself that if you could make everybody happy, half the evil would vanish from the earth. But you believe in God? 
I hope in God I do. How can you then think that he would not destroy evil at such a cheap and pleasant rate? Because he wants to destroy all the evil, not the half of it, and destroy it so that it shall not grow again, which it would be sure to do very soon if it had no antidote but happiness. As soon as men got used to happiness they would begin to sin again, and so lose it all. But care is distrust. I wonder now if ever there was a man who did his duty, and took no thought. I wish I could get the testimony of such a man. Has anybody actually tried the plan? But here I saw that I was not taking Mr. Stoddart with me, as the old phrase was, the reason I supposed to be that he had never been troubled with much care. But there remained the question whether he trusted in God or the bank. I went back to the original question. But I should be very sorry you should think that to give pleasure was my object in saying poetic things in the pulpit. If I do so, it is because true things come to me in their natural garments of poetic forms. What you call the poetic is only the outer beauty that belongs to all inner or spiritual beauty, just as a lovely face—mind, I say lovely, not pretty, not handsome—is the outward and visible presence of a lovely mind. Therefore, saying I cannot dissociate beauty from use, I am free to say as many poetic things, though, mind, I don't claim them. You attribute them to me, as shall be of the highest use, namely, to embody and reveal the true. But a machine has material use for its end. The most grotesque machine I ever saw that did something, I felt to be in its own kind beautiful. As God called many fierce and grotesque things good when he made the world, good for their good end. But your machine does nothing more than raise the metaphysical doubt and question whether it can with propriety be called a perpetual motion or not. To this Mr. Stoddart making no reply, I take the opportunity of the break in our conversation to say to my readers that I know there was no satisfactory following out of an argument on either side in the passage of words I have just given. Even the closest reasoner finds it next to impossible to attend to all the suggestions in his own mind not one of which he is willing to lose, to attend at the same time to everything his antagonist says or suggests, that he may do him justice, and to keep an even course towards his goal, each having the opposite goal in view. In fact, an argument, however simply conducted and honourable, must just resemble a game at football, the unfortunate question being the ball, and the numerous and sometimes conflicting thoughts which arise in each mind forming the two parties whose energies are spent in a succession of kicks. In fact, I don't like argument, and I don't care for the victory. If I had my way, I would never argue at all. I would spend my energy in setting forth what I believe, as like itself as I could represent it, and so leave it to work its own way, which, if it be the right way, it must work in the right mind for wisdom is justified of her children. While no one who loves the truth can be other than anxious, that if he has spoken the evil thing it may return to him void. That is a defeat he may well pray for. To succeed in the wrong is the most dreadful punishment to a man who, in the main, is honest. But I beg to assure my reader 
I could write a long treatise on the matter between Mr. Stoddart and myself. Therefore, if he is not yet interested in such questions, let him be thankful to me for considering such a treatise out of place here. I will only say in brief that I believe with all my heart that the true is the beautiful, and that nothing evil can be other than ugly. If it seems not so, it is in virtue of some good mingled with the evil, and not in the smallest degree in virtue of the evil. I thought it was time for me to take my leave, but I could not bear to run away with the last word, as it were. So I said, "'You put plenty of poetry yourself into that voluntary you played last Sunday. I am so much obliged to you for it.' "'Oh, that fugue! You liked it, did you?' more than I can tell you. I am very glad. Do you know those two lines of Milton in which he describes such a performance on the organ? No. Can you repeat them? His volant touch, instinct through all proportions, low and high, fled and pursued transverse the resonant fugue. That is wonderfully fine. Thank you. That is better than my fugue by a good deal. You have cancelled the obligation. Do you think doing a good turn again is cancelling an obligation? I don't think an obligation can ever be returned in the sense of being got rid of. But I am being hypercritical. Not at all. Shall I tell you what I was thinking of while playing that fugue? I should like very much to hear. I had been thinking while you were preaching of the many fancies men had worshipped for the truth now following this, now following that, never believing they were on the point of laying hold upon her, and going down to the grave empty-handed as they came. "'And empty-hearted, too?' I asked, but he went on without heeding me. "'And I saw a vision of multitudes following, following where nothing was to be seen, with arms outstretched in all directions, some clasping vacancy to their bosoms, some reaching on tiptoe over the heads of their neighbours, and some with hanging heads, and hands clasped behind their backs, retiring hopeless from the chase. "'Strange,' I said, for I felt so full of hope while you played, that I never doubted it was hope you meant to express. "'So I do not doubt I did, for the multitude was full of hope, vain hope, to lay hold upon the truth.' And you, being full of the main expression, and in sympathy with it, did not heed the undertones of disappointment, or the sighs of those who turned their backs on the chase. Just so it is in life. I am no musician, I returned, to give you a musical counter to your picture. But I see a grave man tilling the ground in peace, and the form of truth standing behind him, and folding her wings closer and closer over and around him, as he works on at his day's labour. "'Very pretty,' said Mr. Stoddart, and said no more. "'Suppose,' I went on, "'that a person knows that he has not laid hold on the truth. Is that sufficient ground for his making any further assertion than that he has not found it?' "'No.' But if he has tried hard, and has not found anything that he can say is true, he cannot help thinking that most likely there is no such thing. Suppose, I said, 
that nobody has found the truth, is that sufficient ground for saying that nobody ever will find it? Or that there is no such thing as truth to be found? Are the ages so nearly done that no chance yet remains? Surely if God has made us to desire the truth, he has got some truth to cast into the gulf of that desire. Shall God create hunger, and no food? But possibly a man may be looking the wrong way for it. You may be using the microscope when you ought to open both eyes and lift up your head. Or a man may be finding some truth which is feeding his soul when he does not think he is finding any. You know the fairy queen. Think how long the Red Cross Knight travelled with the Lady Truth, Una, you know, without learning to believe in her. And how much longer still without ever seeing her face. For my part, may God give me strength to follow till I die. Only I will venture to say this, that it is not by any agony of the intellect that I expect to discover her. Mr. Stoddart sat drumming silently with his fingers, a half-smile on his face, and his eyes raised at an angle of forty-five degrees. I felt that the enthusiasm with which I had spoken was thrown away upon him. But I was not going to be ashamed, therefore. I would put some faith in his best nature. "'But does not,' he said, gently lowering his eyes upon mine after a moment's pause, does not your choice of a profession imply that you have not to give chase to a fleeting phantom? Do you not profess to have and hold, and therefore teach the truth? I profess only to have caught glimpses of her white garments, those, I mean, of the abstract truth of which you speak. But I have seen that which is eternally beyond her, the ideal in the real, the living truth, not the truth that I can think but the truth that thinks itself, that thinks me, that God is thought, yea, that God is, the truth being true to itself, and to God, and to man. Christ Jesus, my Lord, who knows, and feels, and does the truth. I have seen him, and I am both content and unsatisfied, for in him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Thomas a Kempis says, He to whom the eternal word speaks, is set free from a press of opinions. I rose, and held out my hand to Mr. Stoddart. He rose likewise, and took it kindly, conducted me to the room below, and ringing the bell committed me to the care of the butler. As I approached the gate, I met Jane Rogers coming back from the village. I stopped and spoke to her. Her eyes were very red. "'Nothing amiss at home, Jane,' I said. "'No, sir. Thank you,' answered Jane and burst out crying. "'What is the matter, then? Is your—' "'Nothing's the matter with nobody, sir.' "'Something is the matter with you. Yes, sir, but I'm quite well.' "'I don't want to pry into your affairs. But if you think I can be of any use to you, mind you come to me.' "'Thank you kindly, sir,' said Jane, and, dropping a curtsy, walked on with her basket. I went to her parents' cottage. As I came near the mill, the young miller was standing in the door with his eyes fixed on the ground, while the mill went on hopping behind him. But when he caught sight of me, he turned and went in as if he had not seen me. "'Has he been behaving ill to Jane?' thought I. As he evidently wished to avoid me, I passed the mill without looking in at the door, as I was in the habit of doing, and went on to the cottage, where I lifted the latch and walked in. 
Both the old people were there, and both looked troubled, though they welcomed me none the less kindly. "'I met Jane,' I said, and she looked unhappy, so I came on to hear what was the matter. "'You oughtn't to be troubled with our small affairs,' said Mrs. Rogers. "'If the parson wants to know, why the parson must be told,' said old Rogers, smiling cheerily, as if he at least would be relieved by telling me. "'I don't want to know,' I said, "'if you don't want to tell me. But can I be of any use?' "'I don't think you can, sir. Leastways, I'm afraid not,' said the old woman. "'I am sorry to say, sir, that Master Brownrigg and his son has come to words about our Jane. And it's not agreeable to have folks's daughter quarrelled over in that way,' said old Rogers. "'What'll be the upshot on it, I don't know, but it looks bad now.' For the father he tells the son that if ever he hear of him saying one word to our Jane, out of the mill he goes, as sure as his name's Dick. Now it's rather a good chance, I think, to see what the young fellow's made of, sir. So I tells my old woman here, and so I told Jane. But neither on em seems to see the comfort of it somehow. But the New Testament do say a man shall leave father and mother, and cleave to his wife. But she ain't his wife yet said Mrs. Rogers to her husband, whose drift was not yet evident. "'No more she can be, except he leaves his father for her. And what'll become of them, then, without the mill?' "'You and me never had no mill, old woman,' said Rogers. "'Yet here we be, very nearly ripe now. Ain't us, wife?' "'Meddler-like, old Rogers, I doubt. Rotten before we're ripe,' replied his wife, quoting a more humorous than refined proverb. "'Nay, nay, old woman, don't ye say so. The Lord won't let us rot before we're ripe, anyhow. That I be sure on.' "'But anyhow, it's all very well to talk. Thou knows how to talk, Rogers. But how will it be when the children comes, and no mill?' "'To grind em in, old woman?' Mrs. Rogers turned to me, who was listening with real interest and much amusement. "'I wish you would speak a word to old Rogers, sir. He never will speak as he's spoken to. He's always over-merry or over-serious. He either takes me up short with a sermon, or he laughs me out of countenance that I don't know where to look.' Now I was pretty sure that Rogers's conduct was simple consistency and that the difficulty arose from his always acting upon one or two of the plainest principles of truth and right. Whereas his wife, good woman, for the bad old leaven of the Pharisees could not rise much in her somehow, was always reminding him of certain precepts of behaviour to the oblivion of principles—a bird in the hand, etc., Mary in haste, etc., when want comes in at the door, love flies out at the window, were amongst her favourite sayings although not one of them was supported by her own experience. For instance, she had married in haste herself, and never, I believe, had once thought of repenting it, although she had had far more than the requisite leisure for doing so, and many was the time that want had come in at her door, and the first thing it always did was to clip the wings of love, and make him less flighty, and more tender and serviceable. So I could not even pretend to read her husband a lecture. "'He's a curious man, old Rogers,' I said. "'But as far as I can see he's in the right, in the main. Isn't he now?' "'Oh, yes, I dare say. 
I think he's always right about the rights of the thing, you know. But a body may go too far that way. It won't do to starve, sir. Strange confusion, or ought I not rather to say ordinary and commonplace confusion of ideas. I don't think, I said, anyone can go too far in the right way. That's just what I want my old woman to see, and I can't get it into her, sir. If a thing's right, it's right, and if a thing's wrong, why wrong it is. The helm must be either to starboard or port, sir. But why talk of starving, I said. Can't Dick work? Who could think of starting that nonsense? Why, my old woman here, she wants him to give it up and wait for better times. The fact is, she don't want to lose the girl. But she hasn't got her at home now. She can have her when she wants her, though leastways after a bit of warning, whereas if she was married and the consequences of follerin at her heels like a man o' war with her convoy, she would find she was chartered for another port, she would. Well, you see, sir, Rogers and me's not so young as we once was, and we're likely to be growing older every day, and if there's a difficulty in the way of Jane's marriage, why, I take it as a godsend. How would you have liked such a godsend, Mrs. Rogers, when you were going to be married to your sailor here? What would you have done? Why, whatever he liked, to be sure. But then, you see, Dick's not my Rogers. But your daughter thinks about him much in the same way as you did about this dear old man here when he was young. Young people may be in the wrong. I see nothing in Dick Brownrigg. But young people may be right sometimes, and old people may be wrong sometimes. I can't be wrong about Rogers. No, but you may be wrong about Dick. Don't you trouble yourself about my old woman, sir. She allus was awkward in stays, but she never missed them yet. When she said her say, round she comes in the wind like a bird, sir. There's a good old man to stick up for your old wife. Still, I say, they may as well wait a bit. It would be a pity to anger the old gentleman. What does the young man say to it? Why, he says like a man he can work for her as well's the mill, and he's ready if she is. I am very glad to hear such a good account of him. I shall look in and have a little chat with him. I always liked the look of him. Good morning, Mrs. Rogers. I'll see you across the stream, sir, said the old man, following me out of the house. You see, sir— he resumed as soon as we were outside. I'm always afeard of taking things out of the Lord's hands. It's the right way, surely, that when a man loves a woman, and has told her so, he should act like a man and do as is right. And isn't that the Lord's way? And can't he give them what's good for them? Mayhap they won't love each other the less in the end if Dick has a little bit of the hard work that many a man that the Lord loved none the less has had before him. I wouldn't like to anger the old gentleman, as my wife says, but if I was Dick, I know what I would do. But don't you think hard of my wife, sir, for I believe there's a bit of pride in it. She's afeard of being supposed to catch at Richard Brownrigg, because he's above us, you know, sir. And I can't altogether blame her, only we ain't got to do with the look of things, but with the things themselves. I understand you quite, and I'm very much of your mind. You can trust me to have a little chat with him, can't you? That I can, sir. Here we had come to the boundary of his garden, the busy stream that ran away, as if it was scared at the labor it had been compelled to go through, 
and was now making the best of its speed back to its mother ocean to tell sad tales of a world where every little brook must do some work ere it gets back to its rest. I bade him good day, jumped across it, and went into the mill, where Richard was tying the mouth of a sack, as gloomily as the brothers of Joseph must have tied their sacks after his silver cup had been found. "'Why did you turn away from me as I passed half an hour ago, Richard?' I said cheerily. "'I beg your pardon, sir. I didn't think you saw me.' But supposing I hadn't. But I won't tease you. I know all about it. Can I do anything for you? No, sir. You can't move my father. It's no use talking to him. He never hears a word anybody says. He never hears a word you say a Sunday, sir. He won't even believe the Mark Lane Express about the price of corn. It's no use talking to him, sir. You wouldn't mind if I were to try? No, sir, you can't make matters worse, no more than you can make them any better, sir. I don't say I shall talk to him, but I may try it if I find a fitting opportunity. He's always worse, more obstinate, that is, when he's in a good temper, so you may choose your opportunity wrong, but it's all the same, it can make no difference. What are you going to do, then? I would let him do his worst, but Jane doesn't like to go against her mother. I'm sure I can't think how she should side with my father against both of us. He never laid her under any such obligation, I'm sure. There may be more ways than one of accounting for that. You must mind, however, and not be too hard upon your father. You're quite right in holding fast to the girl, but mind that vexation does not make you unjust. I wish my mother were alive. She was the only one that ever could manage him. How she contrived to do it nobody could think but manage him she did, somehow or other. There's not a husk of use in talking to him. I dare say he prides himself on not being moved by talk, but has he ever had a chance of knowing Jane, of seeing what kind of a girl she is? He's seen her over and over. But seeing isn't always believing. It certainly isn't with him. If he could only know her. But don't you be too hard upon him and don't do anything in a hurry. Give him a little time, you know. Mrs. Rogers won't interfere between you and Jane, I am pretty sure. But don't push matters till we see. Good-bye. Good-bye, and thank you kindly, sir. Ain't I to see Jane in the meantime? If I were you, I would make no difference. See her as often as you used, which I suppose was as often as you could. I don't think, I say, that her mother will interfere. Her father is all on your side." I called on Mr. Brownrigg, but as his son had forewarned me, I could make nothing of him. He didn't see when the mill was his property, and Dick was his son, why he shouldn't have his way with them. And he was going to have his way with them. His son might marry any lady in the land, and he wasn't going to throw himself away that way. I will not weary my readers with the conversation we had together. All my missiles of argument were lost as it were in a bank of mud, the weight and resistance of which they only increased. My experience in the attempt, however, did a little to reconcile me to his going to sleep in church, for I saw that it would make little difference whether he was asleep or awake. He, and not Mr. Stoddart, in his organ sentry-box, was the only person whom it was absolutely impossible to preach to. You might preach at him, but to him, no. End of chapter 9, part 2
Recording by Bill Borst.